Welcome to Scrubcast, where we explore clinical, translational, and health services research from Stanford University's Department of Surgery through conversations with the authors. I'm your host, Rachel Baker. Today I'm joined by Cliff Schechter, an assistant professor in our Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. Welcome. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. Really excited to uh, chat today. Well, the catalyst for me inviting you on the show today was an article recently published in JAMA Surgery looking at the commercial price variation for breast reconstruction. I guess I should have realized that prices would vary for surgery across the country, sort of like eggs or haircut, but why is that for medical procedures? I like the analogy you immediately start with. You anticipate seeing some price variation that's related to differences in geographies. I mean, as we know, there are certain cities in the United States that are very expensive to live, Mm -hmm. everything from the gas to the food to housing. And seeing that reflected in healthcare prices is not that surprising. Medicare, for example, which is administered from DC, they more or less set their prices, but allow some adjustment for regional markets and regional, regional differences. But really what this paper looks at is commercial insurance. And what we see is that there is variation between parts of the United States that is well beyond in excess uh, for what you would expect for any type of labor market wage. You know, so for example, you know, the, the gas in California may be close to five, six dollars and it may be half that in uh, parts of the southeast. Mm-hmm. You look at the price for breast reconstruction, and it's going to be nine, 10 times more. Good heavens. Their hospital. So there is variation there that is well in excess of anything that's presented regionally in other types of services. Wow. So you were able to conduct this study, I think, because you couldn't have before. Mm-hmm. There was a new law enacted in 2021. Yeah. So the, the price transparency rule was enacted. Uh, in 2021 on a federal level, an attempt to reduce cost of healthcare in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So up until this Price Transparency Act, uh, commercial in- insurance, which is the insurance that 50% of Americans have, mm-hmm. uh, they didn't have to disclose their rates. This was all kind of backdoor dealings. Uh, but once this law came into effect in 2021, all of a sudden, every hospital now has to disclose what their negotiated rate is with insurance companies. And there's a particular company out there called Turquoise Health that has a very savvy way of getting this information off of the websites of essentially all the hospitals in the U.S. aggregating it. And then, uh, you know, I was fortunate to analyze the data for the paper here. Oh, that actually leads me right into my next question, which was, how do you gather all of this data? And so there's a company that's aggregating it for you? Yeah. So they have different algorithms, some of them based off of machine learning that are mining the websites of essentially all the hospitals in the U.S. who are required to disclose uh, the prices for services. And then they're organizing that, collating that, and then, you know, offer that to, to certain researchers. Wow. Very cool. Okay. So, but I couldn't like go on there and be like, what's the price over here? And what's the price over here just for researchers? So they, this company actually, you know, I, I don't want to speak for them. I, I have no <laughs> conflicts of interest with them. I, you know, I, I have to pay for the data I get from them, but I, I, I do think they have consumer facing interests in, in, in allowing consumers to actually 
shop the price of something. High deductible health plans are mm-hmm. very popular today. And, you know, in a high deductible health plan, you may be on the hook for upwards of six, seven, eight thousand dollars in a deductible. Right. And so, you know, if, if you're having an outpatient procedure done, you might want to know the difference in cost between a few yeah. hospitals. And so I think th- they're very interested in helping people shop around to get to get procedures done at a, at a lower price. So uh, I'm not sure how much consumers have to pay or if you get a couple of free searches or not. But yes, I think there is a consumer facing part of what they do. Cool. I'm totally going there after this <laughs> to look at it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so you actually found a pretty wide variation of pricing. And was that surprising to you? I mean, we knew, look, we knew we'd see variation because as yeah. I said, you know, of course, Medicare has some variation based on, you know, labor markets and different factors or geographies. I personally did not anticipate seeing the, the breadth of variation that was there. Perhaps even more surprising is that within single hospitals, you have wide variation for what's negotiated. So for example, you know, Stanford Hospital with insurance company one might negotiate $1,000 for this surgery. But then with insurance company B, they might negotiate $10,000. So everybody's trying to get the best deal. Hospitals want to charge the most. Insurance companies want to pay the least. And part of what the study looked at is how competition within regional markets in healthcare actually affects or at the very least is associated with differences in prices. Mm -hmm. And we were able to show that there is a pretty decent relationship there. What kind of correlations did you find? Well, I mean... You know, this is just kind of basic economics, supply, demand. But you would imagine Mm -hmm. if you have a geography where you have only one hospital, that hospital is probably going to be able to charge pretty high prices for their Mm -hmm. procedures and for their services because that's where the people need to go to get their care. And um, there's nobody else in town. The insurance companies are kind of have to pay what's being asked. Otherwise, they're going to complain to their employers and they're going to find a new insurance company who's going to contract with them. On the other hand, if you have a particular city in the U.S. that has a lot of hospitals who are all kind of competing with each other, then all of a sudden you have a situation where the price of services is going to be lower because these hospitals are going to try to be undercutting each other to get volume, you know, to get more patients to come to them so they get lower prices. And that is one of the major findings of this study is that the amount of competition between hospitals in a given healthcare market does indeed correlate with how much these hospitals are able to negotiate rates with insurance companies. That is really very interesting to me because I'm, as a San Francisco resident, I'm paying through the nose for my Mm -hmm. gas and my housing. But you're telling me that if in fact I have breast cancer and I need a reconstruction, I'm probably going to be paying, well, my insurance is probably going to be paying a lot less. Yeah, the Bay the Bay Area as a whole, you know, compared to other parts of the country, we tend to have a little bit less competition, particularly compared to like Los Angeles, for example, where you have lots of different health systems uh, compete with each other. You know, you would be expecting to pay a pretty decent penny here in the Bay Area because we don't have a whole lot of competition relative to our population size. You know, you have okay. you know, Stanford, you have Sutter which, you know, has a bunch of different flavors of what it calls itself in the Bay Area. Yep. You have UCSF, you have Kaiser and uh, Dignity, you know, mm-hmm. and so that amount of providers compared to LA where you have two, three times that in the Bay Area, we actually pay uh, a lot, uh, a lot more for our, our health care. And, you know, as, as you kind of make it personal and bring it to yourself, your insurance is largely going to cover the cost of, of whatever procedure you're undergoing, whether it be breast reconstruction or you know, orthopedic surgery, et cetera. 
but you got to remember that the amount of money that's being taken out of your overall paycheck, right? Because, right. you know, you contribute something to your healthcare or your employer is contributing something to your insurance plan. That's all money that otherwise would be going to you mm-hmm. in a higher salary if they didn't have to pay the insurance company so much money, who then have to pay the hospital so much money. So in this roundabout way, ultimately paying high costs for healthcare at the hospital level is going to trickle down to paying for high healthcare as an individual. Definitely. So where do you go with this information? Sure. So, I mean, one thing that that I've done, and particularly with my lead co-author, Daniel Rockland, uh, we were residents together in the um, Stanford Plastic Surgery mm-hmm. Program. You know, we have since looked at other operations, other disease processes. We've kind of opened this up to all of cancer surgery mm-hmm. and are finding similar findings. So the signature of what we're seeing in breast reconstruction is it holds true with other disease processes and other types of surgeries. Wow. So foremost, we're able just to kind of show that this is, this is a real pattern that's out there. Mm-hmm. Where do you go from there? I think that if you go back to the whole reason the, the Price Transparency Act was created, it was to lower the cost of healthcare. I think from policy considerations, Department of Justice is the most interested in, mm-hmm. in enforcing and making sure that healthcare markets have enough healthy competition. And so I think papers like this and more that come out can allow the American people to put more pressure or continue the interest of the Department of Justice to prevent from these, you know, mega health systems gobbling up healthcare markets and driving up prices. So on a, as a policy consideration, that's definitely one lever we can pull on. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, as you kind of alluded to a few minutes ago, as an individual, it kind of raises awareness for people to maybe consider how they can shop mm-hmm. uh, health for healthcare services and encourage some savviness getting the best deal for the best price. Got it. Awesome. Well, so we're going to pivot now just a little bit because... Um... I honestly had you pegged for a burn guy. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. Yeah, so I mean, I, <laughs> I am, um, you know, I'm board certified in plastic surgery mm-hmm. and, uh, and critical care. My, you know, my main niche at the intersection of those two things is is burn surgery. But, you know, as, as a burn surgeon, I, I'm probably one of the only plastic surgeons that in a single week will operate on eyelids and the mouth and the neck. And this last week I operated on the breast, you know, so burns affect all parts of the body. You got to be able to reconstruct everything. So well, certainly the majority of my practice is not breast reconstruction. It is a part, I mean, for this study, breast reconstruction is a, is a great kind of case to study because mm-hmm. it's a very, it's a very necessary operation. We know it improves quality of life and, yep. but it's also something that's not an emergent procedure. So it has that mm-hmm. shopability factor mm-hmm. to it. It kind of makes it perfect to study for the questions we had here. But I don't know if that, that helps you. Yes, you are correct. The majority of what I do is take care of burn survivors. Well, so how did you get into burn surgery? It doesn't seem like an obvious choice for plastic surgeons. Um, just, I guess, yeah. because of that trauma element. Yeah, you know, you're, you're totally right. I'm frequently reminded of it, but there are a handful of us across the country. I mean, you know, for me in medical school, I had a really hard time choosing what I wanted to do. I, I, I knew I wanted to do something surgical procedural but at the same time, uh, I also just loved being kind of a doctor and solving difficult medical problems as well. Mm-hmm. Had an experience with burn surgery as a medical student at, mm-hmm. um, at the largest burn center in Southern California, which is at Los Angeles County, USC's medical center. Mm-hmm. And my experience there was, wow, you know, there's a specialty out there where you're going to, you know, save someone's life when they're very sick, uh, particularly from a big big burn, uh, big inhalation injury, but then you're going to spend months putting their body back together through reconstructive surgery and then create this 
lasting relationship through the years of helping them work with their scars. And so it was kind of this specialty that had everything in it for me, the delicate anatomy of plastic surgery, which I'm really drawn to, but yet also being able to, um, you know, save someone's life and provide critical care. So uh, in many ways, it it picked me, you know, as as just the opportunity of what I was exposed to as a student. Mm -hmm. That's a great story. Well, you just received a Traveling Fellow Award from the American Burn Association. Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Where are you thinking you will go with this? Yeah, um, fortunately, the American Burn Association provides this funding to someone at the assistant professor level to travel within the U.S. or Canada. You know, one thing that I always, I guess, feel humbled by or want to learn no- more about is uh, taking care of severely burned children um, you know, when we get them, they're very challenging cases. Obviously, emotions are very high. Mm-hmm. The stakes are very high. Uh, you know, not that it's not that with adults, but with kids, it just has that extra energy to it. And fortunately, we, we do a lot of great burn prevention in the U.S., so we don't have a lot of these catastrophic injuries in kids, but they do happen time to time. So I'm really interested in visiting some places that take care of children with these types of injuries, you know, both from a critical care standpoint, but also uh, from complex reconstruction. So I'm really interested in visiting hospital for sick kids at University of Toronto, some of the um, Shriners uh, across the country in mm-hmm. uh, Galveston, uh, Dayton, Ohio, uh, Boston uh, as well to um, get some more exposure and kind of see how they uh, take care of these patients. So interesting with pediatric patients, because I imagine it's a unique situation, not just because they're young, but because of how their skin needs to grow with them. No, you hit upon something that's a really important concept that I talk to parents in particular in caring for children with, you know, particularly who had deep burns, third degree burns that needed skin grafts or some type of flat base reconstruction. You're totally right. Scars do not grow in the same way as your normal skin does. And so particularly in children who have a lot of their body covered in scar, it's not going to grow as much as they get older. And that can lead to loss of mobility, loss of function. And so that kind of necessitates surgical treatment as they're growing up and making their way to adulthood. Pretty recently, I had to do this operation for a burn survivor here in San Jose who had an injury some years ago to her neck, had good range of motion function of her neck. But as she grew, her neck didn't quite grow with her. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, she was kind of stuck with her chin down towards her chest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, had to perform releases there and, and reconstruct her neck. Uh, to give her that uh, range of motion and also try to give her a more aesthetic looking neck. So you're totally right. It is a challenge. And, you know, I always set the expectation with parents when their children have a large area of scar that it's going to be a lifelong investment in procedural care. Physical therapy can, and occupational therapy can kind of ameliorate some of these issues, but not all of them. So there are patients for a long period, if not for life. I had never thought about that longitudinal aspect of your practice. That's really exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing I really love about it. Awesome. Well, so we're about at time, but I wanted to ask one final question, which is, of course, what advice would you give a medical student or junior resident who's interested in academic surgery and not sure where to start? Yeah, I mean, I think particularly if the focus is an interest in academic surgery, I think you really got to ask yourself, do you like to write? Do you like to think and teach? 
and really do you like doing those things kind of as much as you like being a doctor, being in the OR? And I think if the answer is yes, you like to think and you like to write and teach, I think that academia will, will naturally become that person's pathway and career. I think for people who are there like, God, I like, if I never have to write another paper again, like <laughs> I, I will be so happy. Like I'm so, you know, and, and I think for people with that mindset, you may still want to teach, but mm. I think, you know, a career where research is part of what you do is probably not going to work because so much research involves critical thinking and writing. And so I, I always try to encourage residents to be honest with themselves. And it's mm -hmm. like, it's okay if you, you don't want to be academic in the sense of an investigator, but you, you know, you want to teach and be part of a teaching institution. Those pathways exist and they're out there, but you definitely don't want someone to fool themselves into signing up for a job where they're going to be expected to perform investigations, write about them. And, and that's actually not really where they get their energy. They get more of their energy, you know, being in the operating room, for example. Definitely. We want people to love what they do. Exactly. Well, I always give my guests the opportunity to add anything at the end that I, I haven't asked you about today, but you think our listeners would want to know or you want to share. Wait, you, uh, you caught me there. I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't say anything really on the tip of my tongue other than, you know, I love being a part of the um, Stanford surgery family. I tell people, I feel like I have the best job ever because I get to do health services and health policy research here at Stanford University with a lot of really bright people who I learn from every day. But mm -hmm. then I, you know, it's very unique because I get to run the burn center at our regional county hospital yeah. and take care of, you know, the indigent population there. And from the richest in Silicon Valley to, you know, the, the poorest on the streets of San Jose, hey, come one, come all. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just, I love my job a lot. I'm very, very fortunate to be here. Well, and we love you and love that you are willing to work with all of us here. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was really great talking to you. Okay, great. Thank you, Rachel. Appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you like Scrubcast, we hope you'll tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds, and our chair is Dr. Mary Hahn.